if you have a bunch of successful entrepreneurs in a room and you ask them like, how's your money mindset? Most of them will tell you that it's good. And they're like, no, I believe like I can get to seven figures. I can get to multiple seven figures. I know I can sell, but there's a different kind of mindset that I'm seeing as the pain point. And that is the profit mindset. Welcome everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. And I'm really excited for today's episode because I actually get to sit down with someone who I really admire, Diana House, and talk profit. Yes, we are going to remind you that it's not just top line revenue that you're after, but it's profit that you have to pay attention to. And we're going to teach you all the little hacks and some of the areas where you get tripped up along the way. I cannot wait for you to hear what Diana has to teach you. I promise it's going to change the game for your business. And speaking of changing the game for your business, I got to remind you, there's only a handful of spots left for the 2019 Elite Mastermind Family. That's exactly what I call them, a family. Now listen, if you are a multiple six-figure entrepreneur or if you've just squeaked over seven figures in 2018 and you're looking to learn how to get into multiple seven figures, if you're looking for the most supportive tribe on the planet, if you're looking for a mastermind that was actually put together by somebody who understands the right activities to foster collaboration and breakthroughs throughout the course of the year, and if honestly, you just live in an area where you don't feel understood and you want those big thinkers that understand why you tick the way that you tick, then you have to go to check out this mastermind and see if it's for you. I want you to do this right now, even before the episode starts. I want you to go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind. Again, that is fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind. I want you to poke around there, check out the details, and I want you to fill out that really quick application if it speaks to you, because I want the best of the best personalities in that room. I want a room full of diverse businesses. Now, I love the applications that are coming in right now, and I've got so many awesome interview calls booked with you, but I want to do as many of these interview calls as possible because it is my job, and I take it most serious to get the absolute perfect personality fits and big thinkers in that room. And that is probably you. Go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind, fill out the app. You and I will jump on the phone and we will have a great conversation about how to get your business into multiple seven figures over the course of 2019. And I can't wait to do it with you. Now, speaking of getting your business into seven figures and being profitable, Let's sit down with Diana House. Now, here's what I love about Diana. She's a lawyer turned serial entrepreneur. She has built and sold not one, but two companies, right? And you know what I always say? Like, you are a real entrepreneur when you have built and sold a company. Well, she's done it twice. She's been honored as a top 20 under 40 entrepreneur by Business London and has also been recognized as one of the top female entrepreneurs in Canada by the W100. I mean, we are talking like baller status, and there's so much that you're going to learn from her in this conversation. She's a private lender and a real estate investor, and her biggest passion of all is teaching entrepreneurs how to love their numbers instead of being afraid of them. How many of you are like afraid to lift the hood and check your numbers, right? It happens to all of us. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about where that fear comes from, how you get over it, why it's important, why it's necessary, and 
if it's not your area of expertise, how you can plug into somebody who can do it for you and take it from something that might be scary to something that you are excited to review and to drive your business around. We're talking maximum alignment, efficiency, and profit. So get ready, listen up, take some notes, get super present because this episode is absolutely incredible. All right, Diana, my friend, how the heck have you been? Oh, I'm so good. I am so excited. We're going to South Africa in a few days and to hang out with Richard Branson. And that's the trip that we've been looking forward to all year. I know it kills Lori that she can't go. She has that Oprah Uh, cruise at the exact same time. It's like, imagine uh, choosing between Richard Branson and all of you badass women and Oprah. It's like a tough choice. Well, that sounds all right. Well, it's a tough choice. They're, They're equal privileges, you know? Sounds amazing. I've never heard of that, but I'm going to put that on my bucket list. Oh, you got to go. You totally got to go. Okay. So listen, I'm grateful to have you on and I can't wait for everybody to hear your story and everybody to get tips on, especially when it comes to entrepreneur finance. I know that's like such a pain point for so many people. But before we go there, I always start all my shows with rapid fire. It's just a fun way for my listeners to get to know you in a hurry. And if there's something like really awesome that comes up, we can circle back around and do a deep dive on it. How's that sound? Let's do it. All right. Very cool. So starting really easy. Where'd you grow up? So London, Ontario, Canada. And where do you live now? So we live between London, Ontario, Toronto, and we spend a very significant time in San Diego and traveling. So cool. By the way, I I happen to know more about London than I should because we have good friends that live there. So I've been there a few times. Oh, Rita. Yes. (laughs) Yes. yes, Totally. We have mutual good friends. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Favorite quote? Oh, I mean, I think it's probably biblical. Um, Jeremiah 29, 11. And can you repeat it for us? Can you quote it for us? Yes. It's just that God has um, like big plans for you. Oh my God. I love it. Like plans, plans to actually, you'll love this, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Mm, so good. What is one of your superpowers? Mm, money. <laughs> love it. We're going to get into that for sure. What is one of your all-time favorite books? I love Cameron Harold's Double Double. It is so epic, Vivid Vision, Chapter 2, Unreal. Wow, I've never heard of it. It's, an, it's outstanding. So Cameron Harold is a Canadian. He was the COO that took 1-800-GOT-JUNK from 2 million to 100 million. And so he talks about how he worked with the entrepreneur, Brian Scudmore, who's a friend of mine, and how he built it up um, to the 100 million. And he kind of breaks down how he did it so that you can recreate that. Oh my God, so cool. What is one thing you're challenged by right now? Oh, patience. Always patience. So I just sold two businesses. And so I'm starting a new business and I want to be at like level 10 tomorrow. God, you guys are so badass. I love it. Favorite speech or favorite advice you've ever given? Favorite advice that I have ever given? Yep. Hmm. Like anything around opportunity cost and sunk cost. Like walking away... Even if other people think that's crazy because there's like a bigger opportunity for you on the other side. Oh God, totally. Who is someone who's changed your life? Oh, my husband. Aww. He is the he's the best human being on earth. So yeah, just being married to such a badass that has given me just this extra layer of superpower and confidence. And he he's just the best human. So cool. I love couples like you guys. A few more here. What is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments this far? Um, I think definitely scaling a business past seven figures very, very profitably. Oh yeah, totally. What is one thing from your past you might change? 
Oh man, so many things. Um, so I went to law school. And I don't know if that was the best use of three years, though it was in Australia and I loved Australia. <laughs> well, that made it worth it right there then. Two more. Yep. What is something generous you've done recently? Um, so we we tithe. So we like give 10% to the church. So I feel like we are like always giving. But actually, you know what? That one's boring. I will say I took two of my best friends to Canyon Ranch. Um, they were both going through some big transitions. It's a very high-end spa in Arizona. Uh, and we had like the time of our lives. Oh, so cool. I actually know where that is. And I've got some friends that go and they rave about it. Last one, what are you grateful for today? Oh, this, this is such a great opportunity. You have such an amazing community. And I just, I love chatting with you. Oh my God, likewise. Okay, so then let's get deeper into the interview now. And here's where I actually want to start. You are this total badass entrepreneur woman. I respect you to the highest degree. You've accomplished so much. But what's the backstory that created the person who you are now? Wow, so many backstories. So if we go to my university career, I went to four different universities, you know, over five years. <laughs> um, it was really hard for me to find my path. I was very, very lost. Ended up going to law school because I was still lost. And it wasn't until I had done seven years of post-secondary education when I was like crying, being like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I sold all my belongings. I was living in Australia at the time and I fled to Bali with no plan at all. And while I was in Bali, I was very into yoga at the time. I was doing a yoga teacher training and really like trying to figure out what I needed to do with my life and knew that it was time to really get my shit together because I had now spent so much money doing school. I was 25, like it was time to grow up. Um, and thankfully, while I was in Bali, I saw all these LA hipster cool kids wearing these yoga beads. And I was, you know, watching trends in the market at the time. Yoga was growing dramatically. Lululemon, uh, the yoga fashion company, it was growing dramatically. And I put it together that this was a really great niche that no one had tapped into, which was these yoga um, mala beads. And the company that I started was Tiny Devotions. Totally familiar. It's a great company, by the way. Oh, thank you. And so you started to build Tiny Devotions. What was next? Yeah. So, I mean, super scrappy. I started the company with a $3,000 grant from the government. My whole family was in horror because they thought I was going to be a lawyer. I come from a super <laughs> successful family of entrepreneurs, but still it was not encouraged to be an entrepreneur. It was expected that you would go into the corporate world and get a great job. And my dad is a genius and his, his vision was he'd have two daughters. One would be his HR and my sister went ahead and did that human resources, and I would be his lawyer. So I completely destroyed his vision um, <laughs> by, by telling him like, no, dad, I'm not going to be a lawyer, but I'm going to sell these beads on the internet with this thing called e-commerce, which really didn't even exist you know, nine, 10 years ago. And he's like, you're crazy. Oh, literally, I'd go to family dinners and be bawling. And my whole family was against this idea. So I'm really curious. It's really tough when your family's against you. And, and a lot of listeners struggle with the same thing. So who or where did you turn to for courage to keep going when your family was, you know, in a loving way, but maybe mistakenly uh, trying to convince you not to go down that path? So we're so lucky in 2018 because entrepreneurship is now a thing. There's things like, you know, your mastermind, which is so amazing. I've heard so many good things about it. There's all these different like entrepreneur connect groups and peer groups. At the time, entrepreneurship wasn't so trendy and wasn't so mainstream. So 
I didn't know about any groups like this. I didn't have any entrepreneur friends. So I actually didn't have anyone in my peer group that really kind of related to this. So um, the only kind of person that was really there for me at the time was um, my boyfriend, who was not an entrepreneur, but he was extremely supportive of of this idea. And, and he kind of saw it before I even did. And so you, at least you had you know him to turn to. How did you end up set building and selling it? Yeah, so long journey, nine-year business. And I started other business in between the sale of this one. Oh my God, you did? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was the, the first company that I started, but then we started doing other things in between this one. So I guess the build process was just really, really scrappy. We started this company when Facebook Organic was like a legit channel, which that has changed yeah, a lot. Yeah, totally changed now. <laughs> um, and then we also started this when influencer marketing was like just on fire. So the people that I did the first influencer marketing with for Tiny Devotions, they told me that I was their first, their first influencer brand, wow. which kind of again shows you how kind of far back this goes. So that's how we built it. I've definitely made tons of mistakes, did not hit the Facebook paid um, opportunity when that was massively there. Like you could get two cent leads back in the day, (laughs) did not hit that. Um, And, you know, part of it was, I didn't really need to, we were growing, you know, very quickly, some years as much as like 77% with, you know, really great margins. So I wasn't, you know, that motivated to try to find other channels. And when we came down to selling it, it was two years ago. And I mean, I just did a great shout out to uh, uh, Built to Sell, which is another podcast. If anyone wants to hear the story, I just told the whole two-year story on Built to Sell. And it's, it's a crazy story. I almost sold Tiny Devotions for multiple millions. And I timed the sale wrong. And it ended up being a fraction of that based on the market going from blue ocean to red ocean and a few deals that fell apart. So that is a great um, episode if you want to learn what not to do when selling a company. (laughs) Uh, uh, Listen, I have to get like the tiny short version answer to why did you not take the offer when it was on the table? So I did take it. So I had multiple offers. Some were in the seven figures, some were in the multiple seven figures. You know, it's really hard to take a seven figure offer when you have a multiple seven figure offer. Mm -hmm. So I was dealing with the group that was the multiple seven figure offer. They were friends of mine, um, as was actually the other one. And I think my my biggest mistake was I didn't get a deposit at LOI. And I missed it when my lawyer had put it in that he wanted the deposit at a firm agreement. And so that meant for three months, they would have no skin in the game and no urgency to move forward. So the whole three months, they said that they were going to be closing on the deal, closing on the deal. And then we got like a week away from closing and they decided that they were going to sell instead. Wow. And it was so much energy to do the due diligence. It was emotionally and mentally exhausting and we lost so much momentum. I took my eye, you know, so much, you know, off the ball while I was dealing with this. And I was already super over the brand for probably five or six years. So when I went to sell it August 2016, it was already way too late. Yeah. Like I should have, I should have sold earlier, but I was selling another business. So we just had too many things going on. And I wasn't able to be as strategic as, you know, an entrepreneur with a whole portfolio. I kind of was more reactive. And so um, I did sell it. it. It ended up being the craziest story because I ended up finally talking about opportunity cost and sunk cost. I finally decided 
if I did not sell by August 2018, so just a few months ago, that I would close the business, even though it was profitable for nine years. I had just spent too much time. I'd gone down the path with too many people that I drew a line in the sand. And uh, I ended up selling it that day. Like that was the day of our closing after, you know, I don't know how many 50 failed sale attempts. It was, I think John Warillo, who runs Built to Built to Sell, he said it was the craziest sales story he'd ever heard. Wow, that's nuts. Okay, so do you have any advice for people based on that entire series of events? You know, you started building two companies, you lost interest in one. The, the entire series of events that went down, what would you do differently? One, if you can get a deposit at LOI, for sure. Definitely sell early. There's a few great resources, a book called Early Exits, um, the Built to Sell book, as well as the Built to Sell podcast, as well as Finish Big. And um, people really underestimate how long it takes to sell, and it often takes years. And what happens is by the time entrepreneurs go to sell, they're usually over it. And you don't want to be selling a company from that, um, you know, that emotional place because people can pick up on it and you can't be as strategic. So the best time to sell is, you know, when you're growing and when you don't need to sell. I guess other little tidbits is having a sales deadline. So ultimately what sold the business was me having a very, very firm deadline saying, you know, it's August 31st. And I had so many people that didn't believe me. And they ultimately weren't able to buy the company because they were like making up other deadlines for closing. And I was like, nope, this is this is my firm deadline. I will not budge on this no matter what. So having a, a deadline is is really crucial to getting people past the finish line. If not, they can spend, you know, six, 12, 18, 24 months um, just kind of puttering around and not making the final decision. Mm, such good advice. Okay, so what was the other company that you built and sold? It was a company called Cole and Parker. Um, and so what that was, it was a social enterprise sock company. So we did really colorful socks and we loaned proceeds from the socks to Kiva, which is uh, the world's largest microfinance organization. My husband had been over to Columbia and done some work with a micro lending company. We're both just like really passionate about that model of instead of giving a man a fish, teaching him how to fish and creating creating kind of more um, sustainability as opposed to just, you know, charity. Yes. Um, so we had fun with that company. We went on Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of Shark's Tank. And we did a successful crowdfunding campaign. Um, but ultimately, my husband wanted to run that company. And so I let him do that. And then he ended up getting way too busy with his like real estate stuff. And we decided, you know, after a few years that it was kind of time to sell that business and move forward. I love that you guys have number one had two exits. Like that's what makes someone a real entrepreneur, in my in my opinion. So super <laughs> impressive. And the company that you built and sold, the one you just described, that is exactly the ethos of this show, right? Something that is for social cause. I love companies that are for profit for cause. I feel like that's the best model on the planet out there right now. What did it feel like to be ambitious behind a company that you knew was doing good, not just creating profit? It was very interesting. So my husband is more of the social entrepreneur and I'm more of the capitalist. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of very interesting... So me and him, we live in a very beautiful creative tension a lot of the time around business. <laughs> um, it, it's very powerful because he's like super ADHD, super visionary, super creative. And then I'm um, you know, on the disc. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Super cautious, super compliant, very financially driven. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, with that, we had just some beautiful conversations around... You know, At the be beginning, he wanted to give away 
like 10%, maybe it was even 20% of top line to Kiva. Wow. And I just had to explain, I'm like, you know, babe, like that translates to maybe all of the profit on the bottom line, depending mm-hmm. on how this works out. So it was really cool, you know, relationally and business-wise having to navigate being kind of co-CEOs. Um, and it was four months into dating. So it was very early in our relationship. But it's cool. We we figured it out. It took us a few years. Um, and we both figured out like what our um, zones of genius are. And now he knows like I'm the CEO. He's the artist. Um, and we've figured out this like really great way to creatively work together. Oh, I love that. What advice do you have for other couples that work together to come to such an agreement? Like, do you have any hacks in, when it comes to working together as a couple or anything that is a must do? I mean, it definitely is not for the faint of heart. You have to, you know, tread very carefully um, because, you know, it can ruin a lot of relationships. So there has to be a very strong foundation. You know, for us, like faith is a huge aspect of, you know, our relationship. So, you know, we did a lot of kind of work around, around that. We talk about everything and we talk all the time. So we would just get in the mess. And get in and have whatever difficult conversation, you know, we had um, as well as I think, you know, during that period, we definitely did like couples therapy to to work through what it was. Because I think, you know, it was challenging for my husband because he, you know, married this very powerhouse, you know, female entrepreneur. And previously, I think he felt like very like dominant in a lot of business and kind of relationships. But between the two of us, I can be the more dominant personality. I can see that. Yeah, it took us just some time to figure out how to navigate that and for each of us to like appreciate each other's gifts. And now I know like my husband has the crazy multi-million dollar ideas. Like it he's that. And so I like want them to come out and I like encourage those. And then he doesn't have that cautious compliance. So then he comes to me now and he's like, I think it's just practice. You know, once you start practicing and seeing like, oh, this is what happens when we do a project together and we both stay in our zones of genius. It's massively successful. (laughs) Um, Whereas if we try to do it, you know, without that, it it maybe won't be as successful. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that you just said. It's so interesting building businesses as a couple and you must work on the relationship as hard as you work on the business. And I think that's where people go wrong. They first have a great relationship and they say, oh good, that's good. I'm going to put it on the shelf. Now we're going to go build a great business. Right. And the other one starts getting dusty on the shelf. So you've absolutely got to make them both an equal priority. You have to have crazy boundaries around the relationship with regards to business. So for us, like when we get home somewhere between 530 and 6, like we do not talk about business in the evening. We do not have computers out. Like it is done. We have business meetings in the morning and we'll like schedule in, you know, business meetings, but we're not like talking about business all day, all night you know, all weekend, anything like that. And and for us, that has been the game changer. I love that. Boundaries are so freaking key. I'm, gr- I'm glad you brought that up. In the story you were just telling, you talked about crowdsourcing in, in order to develop revenue for your business. You yes. did it very successfully. Way too many of my listeners should at least be checking into crowdsourcing, but I don't think they know enough on how to successfully do it. What insight mm. can you offer around that? So the why for doing, you know, crowdfunding is I'm all about building real cash flow businesses. And, you know, a lot of people don't have startup capital, but even if you do have startup capital, 
It is, you know, a great, you know, market test to see what will happen if you put this idea up without investing a lot of money, you know, into it and to see like, you know, how much are people going to buy? And I mean, we didn't sell like millions of dollars, but we had an idea. And I think seven days later, we put a crowdfunding campaign up and we pre-sold $42,000 worth of socks, like literally within like a week of the idea. And so for us, that was great confirmation that, okay, this is something that we need to run with. And we also needed to show revenue for going on Dragon's Den, which is like the Canadian shark's tank. So that was our other strategy for why, Um, but how to do it. So it is just so much more work than it looks like. You definitely can't just like put up a video and put up a page. It is a PR, you know, engine. You need to be ready to like hustle, like all of your friends, all of your family, all of your PR contacts. Um, you know, any associations that you have. Um, and as well as I have some friends now that have done like multi seven figure um, campaigns, a lot of them do like hire a PR agency and do paid um, and they do it like as a proper um, launch. So that would be, you know, the one kind of caveat. It is a lot of work and people now recommend that you have probably at least 90 days of planning before you launch. It's so true. I think people think they can just throw up a uh, crowdfunding page and share it on their Facebook and all of a sudden the money is going to pour in. It doesn't work that way. It truly is a well-coordinated effort at aiming it at the right people, isn't it? 100%. So who should be considering crowdfunding? Paint an avatar. Hmm. So definitely, I think a physical product, you know, works best. Um, I think something that is like very interesting and I'm trying to think of the name of that blog, Um, but you know, those blogs that feature like very interesting kind of viral worthy, unique products. Mm -hmm. I think products that fit kind of that criteria, something that's almost like newsworthy that if someone sees they're going to want to like a jump on this and be an early adopter, but then also share it with their friends and family and be proud that they have like found this, you know, product on the internet. I think that's kind of pretty much my only criteria. I think something, you know, visual so that when you create a really cool video, it's very enticing. But I think, you know, beyond that, I think anyone can can explore it. I was recently looking at it for a project and I think it was in the jewelry space. And, you know, I don't think jewelry is like that unique around crowdfunding. It seems like um, products that have like a tech aspect seem to do better. I know recently there was, or a few years ago, there was like a cooler that had like, so much like built-in technology, I think. So things that have like a tech element seem to do really well on there. Mm, love it. So this is where you thrive is teaching people about the finances behind their business. And there's way too many people I feel like that wake up an accidental entrepreneur. What I mean is they got an idea and they build a product and they do a little launch and they start making some money and then they hire a, someone to help them out and they make a little bit more money and they never set up the proper systems, and they never seek the proper mindset around their finances, right? Because they just wake up one day and they have a business. So start guiding us through that. Why is it so important to get our arms around the management of our finances from day one? Oh, Chris, I am so excited about talking about this topic. I'm just so expectant that we can really provide like a lot of breakthrough for your listeners in this area. Um, And it's an area that I've been talking to my other kind of finance entrepreneur friends, and we are estimating, and this is totally a made-up stat, but we think it's probably around like 95% of entrepreneurs that are struggling with an area of their finances within their business. 
Wow, I believe it. I absolutely yeah, say it, 95%. I agree. Yeah, and it's not um, it's not just people that are starting out and it's not people that are, you know, maybe have crossed the six figures mark. It, it's people that are making, you know, multiple millions of dollars or even like tens of millions of dollars. They have built these companies and they are cash monsters. And uh, so many people think that entrepreneurs, like that the average entrepreneur is like so rich and so wealthy and like lives this extremely glamorous life and, you know, makes so much money and they're greedy. And it is the complete opposite. Entrepreneurs are some of the most generous and of service people in the world. And as I peel back the numbers with, you know, all these very, you know, quote unquote, successful entrepreneurs, like a lot of them don't pay themselves very well. A lot of them pay their team a lot better than they pay themselves. Um, and there's so much, you alluded to the mindset, um, there's so much you know, guilt and shame around this area of business. And when I think of mindset, I think the part that entrepreneurs have figured out is the revenue mindset. You know, If you have a bunch of successful entrepreneurs in a room and you ask them, like, how's your money mindset? Most of them will tell you that it's good. And they're like, no, I believe like I can get to seven figures. I can get to multiple seven figures. I know I can sell. But there's a different kind of mindset that I'm seeing as the pain point, and that is the profit mindset. Um, and it's almost like a different layer of, of that. And for some reason, so many entrepreneurs, they don't believe they need profit. They don't believe they need it right now. They don't think it's the most important thing. And that seems to be the black hole that they are missing. Mm, so are you saying that the the people who are almost, they act like martyrs, like, oh, I'm not going to make any profit for the first two years. I know what I'm signing up for. Do they have the wrong mindset? Should they be seeking profit right away? So I personally think that in most businesses, you should be able to be profitable very quickly. You know, maybe not month one, but I think, you know, after a few months, you should, unless you are building a very capital intensive, you know, technology company or something, you know, uh, that requires like a lot of real estate or a lot of investment. Um, but I'm thinking that a lot of your listeners are not doing that and they're doing kind of more, you know, online businesses, um, you know, maybe retail, you know, things like that. And yeah. I think 100% in those businesses, you know, they're definitely you know, is a way to do that very, very quickly. And I think, you know, profit is a choice and it is a, a mindset. And if you believe that you can make the profit and you just commit that you are going to run your business um, with profit from, you know, day one or at least like day 60, it is a hundred percent possible. Oh my God. I love that. So everyone, you've been put on notice. <laughs> you should be, you know, running your company so that you're making a profit. So how do they know if their finances are out of whack? What should they be looking for? Okay. So <laughs> here's the thing, Chris, a lot of these entrepreneurs are not looking. They're literally just operating They're, in their business and never taking the time to look. Yes. So again, as I've started going deep with this work and working with entrepreneurs one-on-one, an enormous amount of literally successful entrepreneurs, like they run multi-seven-figure companies, they do not know how to get into their accounting software, whether that's QuickBooks or Xero or Sage, they literally don't even have access to it. It's sitting on a file at a bookkeeper's office not on the cloud, and they don't even know how to send me. Because the first thing I ask people for um, is some pre-work and some reports. And it is it has blown my mind. Um, people don't even have access to it. So once people have like the mindset dialed in, 
And so, I mean, there's tons of things you can do around mindset. I think the biggest thing is making a choice. Um, you know, there's some some great books out there. Um, T.K. Harv, um, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. I think I actually found out about that book through you guys. Yes, that's um, awesome. It's one of our favorites. Yes. It's a game changer for us. Uh, that just hit me. I'm like, I think I heard about it on your podcast once. So, you know, there's things like that. You know, I know he talks about affirmations in the book. The biggest mindset experience that I had that changed my life was at a Tony Robbins event. Keith Cunningham, he is the rich dad from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He got us all to be like screaming and yelling every time he said the word numbers and like profit and loss statement. And we'd all have to like cheer and like we got that in our body. Um, And that's, I think, what got me super obsessed with figuring out this level, you know, this numbers thing out on a a deeper level. Um, So once the mindset is there, the second step is really awareness. And that starts with like really, really basic but figuring out where your accounting file is <laughs> um, and, and getting into the accounting file. Do you think that people don't take the time to get into their accounting file to dive into the numbers because they're afraid to? Or do they feel like they can just outsell whatever problem they might have? As long as cash flow is pouring in, they must be good. I think it's three things. I think they believe it It doesn't matter because... And I, I do believe this. I, I think you can avoid the numbers for a while and still be really successful. You you can. Um, And when people say, oh, like you can't be successful without avoiding the numbers, it's not true. If you have really, really great margins and you have like a, you know, a pretty good like gut sense of what's happening, um, you know, you can do it. But you are leaving so much money on the table. Mm. And so I'm all about ease. You know, why work, um, you know, why work so much harder to make money where you can work less hard and make more money? And so one of the things that really triggered me to commit to doing this work is my two businesses that I sold were in e-commerce. And an e-commerce organization sent out this huge state of the union survey of like a thousand top e-commerce companies. And it had some really great stats. And one of the stats was about profitability. And I realized that my seven-figure e-commerce company made more profit than um, most of the eight-figure e-commerce companies. Whoa. And I was like, oh my goodness, these people, they're working so hard, you know, to, to run eight figures, like you have way more team, you know, you have way more sophistication with things. And I had like a pretty good cash cow you know, business that was pretty low maintenance that I had completely taken myself out of, you know, operationally. Mm-hmm. And and so there's always an easier way. And so, yeah, if you want to kind of continue slogging it out and really focused on the revenue, but not squeezing the lemon for as much profitability as you can, like you can do that, but like, why make it hard on yourself? God, that's so true. Why are you leaving all that money on the table just because you don't want to look at it? Do you think it's ego or fear? I don't, I I really don't think it's ego. Um, I think it's partially fear um, because if you haven't looked, like there are monsters that are lurking there and they're fixable, but those monsters are there and and you kind of want to avoid it. Um, I think the other thing is lack of education. No one is talking about this. Um, You know, Mike Michalowicz, he's amazing. He wrote a a great book called Profit First um, and he has been, you know, doing great service with entrepreneurs, you know, talking about this, but, you know, besides Mike and his very specific system, like this is just not a conversation that a lot of people are having. And if you look at the two paths in business, this is how I look at it. You have two options. One, you're going to start a business. You're going to keep it forever. Um, you're going to live off the profits 
you know, or two, you're going to decide to sell. And I think a lot of people trick themselves into thinking, well, if I sell, then profit isn't actually the number I should focus on. It's revenue. But that's completely not true. If you're selling a business, a buyer is actually buying off a of profit. Um, more specifically, there's a more technical term called EBITDA, which is earnings before um, interest, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so um, whether you're going to keep a business forever or you're going to sell, profit is actually the most important thing. And so you know, my whole mission is to really educate people that it's really not that hard. Um, accountants, well, okay, let me back up one sec. So people, when they think of entrepreneur finance, they think of two different people. They think of a bookkeeper or a finance administrator, which is just another title for someone who might be in-house, mm-hmm. and an accountant. And so an accountant or a CPA, um, they're amazing. They're crucial. I think every entrepreneur should have an accountant that they know and trust. Um, and an accountant will do your year end um, and they will do your tax filing and they will, you know, hopefully do some tax planning for you and tell you, you know, how you should be budget budgeting for tax throughout the year. 99% of accountants are not operational. They're not looking at your numbers, um, you know, throughout the year, trying to tell you where to make more money. Um, and that confuses people. I think a lot of entrepreneurs think that an accountant is going to be their, you know, finance wingman and tell them what to do. It's so um, true. They're almost reactionary, most of them. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you don't give them the numbers till the year is done. And there's not anything that they can do at that point anyways. God, that's fascinating. So many people are in that trap. Let's, right, let me ask you this question. If people aren't looking at it right now, you're right, there's probably monsters and they're afraid to look at those monsters and they don't know how to handle them. So if they turn to somebody like you, how do you clean it up for them? Is it painful? Is it painless? Is it hard to do? Walk us through that because there's probably people freaking out right now. Okay, well, there's no need to freak out. And if anyone is feeling like, okay, this we're, we're talking to me, just know, you know, you're in the 95%, and it's okay because it's better to learn this now than you know, 10 years from now when your market shifts from blue ocean to red ocean. And so, you know, what I start with is again, you know, that mindset which we we've covered. Um, from there, I go to you know, organization. My framework around the profit and loss. You know, I'm not being literal here, but it's. Anyone who is dumb or drunk should be able to understand what is happening in the business by looking at the profit and loss. Oh my God, what a good rule of thumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the other thing is like when I'm looking at someone's numbers, I'm lazy. Like I want to know in five minutes of looking at this, like I want to know exactly what is happening, you know, in the company. And I think this is what most entrepreneurs want as well. Um, so most entrepreneurs, they're visionaries, um, they're they're creators, they're product developers, or they're like sales machines. And I think some of the resistance around doing this work is that it doesn't feel like that fun and shiny, and it feels like a time suck. And it has been organized by the accountants and the bookkeepers. Um, and the, the way they've organized it really only adds value to them for what they're doing at year end, which we have already you know, decided is not actually helpful to the entrepreneur because it's already too late. So the first tweak that I suggest um, is reworking that financial statement. So it is set up so simply that it's just easy to read. And, and some of the tactics of doing that um, is... Well, and one, I think as a general rule, I like it to be like one page. If it's like three or four pages, like there's no way you can really look at that and analyze it 
quickly. So I think, you know, getting it down to like one page or, you know, one and a half pages is a great way to do it. Um, and a key thing is um, organizing the different expenses. And again, this is not something the entrepreneur would be doing. This is like something that um, an entrepreneur would delegate out to their bookkeeper or their finance administrator. And I guess I was kind of getting into that previously. So while an accountant does the year end, the bookkeeper or finance administrator, their um, administrative function and all they're really doing is allocating, you know, revenue or expenses into these different categories. And I mean, that actually does not add value. It's um, necessary, but it's like the level one. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I do is I really want to empower the entrepreneur to really like take the financial reins of the company and start actually instructing both their accountant and their bookkeeper about what they want um, and for it to serve them. And so, you know, something that I do with almost all my clients is, you know, their their marketing expenses are all over the financial statement and they're in different areas. So there might be one section that's called marketing. There's another one that's advertising and it's like on a whole other different area. Then there's one that says Facebook ads. Then there's one that says like print, um, printing and reproduction and so on and so on. And I'll ask an entrepreneur I'm working with, like, what do you think you spend on marketing? Um, And they'll say, you know, probably about 5% or, you know, 10% of, of revenue. And that's what it looks like based on how it's laid out. Once we group all the marketing expenses into one header category, you know, called marketing, we'll look at it again and be like, yikes, it's like 43% of revenue and you actually run a referral business that doesn't require this much marketing. Wow. And so like this is just like some of the things that happen when you start organizing it. You first kind of have that, you know, come to Jesus moment where you're like, "Oh wow, like what I'm spending is not what I thought I was spending percentage-wise." And I really like percentages because then you can really, you know, compare it year to year, you can compare it, you know, based on revenue. So I always really like to, you know, show my clients this is the different um, business expense areas, and this is what percent you are spending in that you know business area. So you simplify it. You encourage them yes. to simplify it. Do you actually work with them and do this for them? Because entrepreneurs probably aren't doing it because they have so much fear around it and they're so busy that even though you are laying out what to do, they're not going to follow through. Yeah. So I'm like implementation obsessed. Um, and so like my first call is just with the entrepreneur because we have like usually some really deep stuff to work through. There's often tears um, and there's often these, you know, agreements or arrangements that are made within the business that, you know, we have to kind of bring to the surface. Um, Again, I think entrepreneurs are some of the most generous, loving people um, and their why and their values for the business are very important. And I don't ignore that in this process. So like, for instance, one entrepreneur I was working with, his why was actually to employ four or five of his family members. So he started this company for that reason. And so like, we're going to work with that. You know, even if those people are not the right people on the bus or maybe even in the right seat, that doesn't even matter because that's his why and that's, you know, what we're doing there. Sure. Um, but so my second call always has the implementers on the line um, because the implementers are really the people that I'm relying on to do this nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. So whether that's the administrator or, you know, an operations manager. Um, and I think like every visionary entrepreneur needs an operator well, and, you know, to. It's a must. Like even if it's a even if you're just starting out, if you're a super visionary, 
like find an entry-level operations assistant that you can work with four hours a week. That on its own will literally make your life 10 times easier because we just don't, like visionaries don't function in that realm and and you need that person. So yeah, call one is always just the entrepreneur. We go very deep. Um, Call two is, and they have a list of implementation after the first call, but the second call um, it's always the implementers because really the entrepreneur shouldn't be doing, you know, the basic administrative stuff anyways, right? That's not their job. Like they need to be creating great product ideas. And so my outcome that I'm looking for with entrepreneurs um, is I want them to get to the place where their finance person is sending them a monthly email that I call the CFO report. And in that email, it has all the things that they need to know about their business for that previous month laid out for them in like five sentences. So when I say like, you know, you need to spend some time on this each month, like I'm asking for 15 minutes of their time to read this email um, and then start seeing what what's coming up from them in their decision-making as they start to receive this data. What's coming up for me is this. If they're not willing to invest, once you build the process, 15 minutes a month to know what's going on. And if their goal is to build a bigger and bigger and bigger, more successful business, they're begging for trouble. Totally. Yeah. And trouble's coming. Trouble's coming, right? Like as we have to be, as entrepreneurs, we have to be flexible. We need to anticipate changes. There are competitors chasing us, you know, like there's currency changes, you know, there's recessions coming. Like there's always, you know, problems coming and we need to be one step ahead of those things and be prepared for them. Oh my gosh. I love it. Okay. So how can people, if this is resonating with them, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. So my website is uh, dianahouse.com. And I also just uh, started Instagram. So I'm an introvert um, and I have avoided, you know, building a personal brand, quote unquote, for nine or 10 years. And I just about six weeks ago got on Instagram and I am Diana Powerhouse, which is a nickname um, by Natalie McNeil. (laughs) (laughs) And a well-deserved nickname too. I love that. I love that you're finally getting into Instagram a little bit. It is fun. I, I'm having fun with it. So cool. Okay. So last question is this. And, and Oh, wait. Actually, before I ask the last question, I want to ask this. Who should actually be contacting you? Like, What should they be making before they contact you? Yeah, sure. So for, for the work that we're doing, like, it, it doesn't really work that well for people who are just starting out because they don't have revenue yet. Um, it's probably you know not worth the investment. So I, I kind of don't work with people that are under six figures and you know a lot of like seven and eight figure entrepreneurs. But the resource that I will refer people to who are just starting out um, would be kind of that money mindset book that we discussed, the TK Hard book. Um, and then two, I think Profit First, um, by Mike Michalowicz is a very good foundational book um, for people that are just starting out. Have you read that book? No, but it's coming up like left and right as a recommendation mm. lately. It's it's a really great read. He does talk a lot about mindset. He's very open about sharing his story. And, and he has a very simple system that I think entrepreneurs can use kind of just from the get-go. Um, it's not a system that I use for myself. Um, and if my clients want to use it, you know, that's something that we can explore as well as this. But for me, like I'm all about like education and having the entrepreneur really understand what's happening. Um, And so a system can support and encourage that, but I want to go deeper. Oh my God. So good. Okay, cool. So last question is always this, and I'm actually excited to ask you because when you described your personality earlier and your husband's personality, this one's geared towards you. And it's this, Okay. why should people be unapologetic? about their pursuit of wealth or success. Totally. And I, I mean, for me, and this is this is where like my faith 
comes in into play. Um, you know, I think like, you know, as a Christian, like God wants us to be blessed and he wants us to live, you know, abundantly and have everything that we need. Um, and, you know, there's a great scripture, it's 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and you know, it's, it's God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all the things at all times, you have everything that you need and you will abound in every good work. Um, and I think, you know, the more prosperity you have, I think the more you're able to serve, the more you're able to help people. So I'm all about, you know, being resourced and knowing that I will um, do better with those resources than I think, you know, other people will. Mm, I love it. That is one of the best answers yet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. I appreciate it so much. And I can't, you know, after having this conversation, there's a lot of things with my mastermind and with other groups that I coach that I think I'm going to investigate collaborating with you on. So this has been like massive value. This has been massive everything for not just my listeners, but for myself. And I really, really appreciate it. Oh, Chris, I always love chatting with you. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor. And I I learned so much from you and, and listening to the podcast all the time. Oh, that is such an honor. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.